today. You guys okay? Hey, well, I hope so, and uh, I want to welcome everybody across all of our campuses. So whether you're joining us from north, downtown, west, anybody online, those of you joining us in our PM services, can we just give it up? Those of you here in northwest, good to have all of you today, and uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. And I just want to continue to encourage you to be thinking and praying about uh, friends or family that you would invite to come with you to one of our 26 worship experiences across all of our campuses uh, beginning December the 19th, uh, rolling all the way through Christmas Eve. And uh, you can get some invitation cards and be inviting uh, people to come with you to that. And then I also want you to look ahead just a bit uh, to the first Sunday of 2020. Can you believe that? 2020? Uh, it's coming up. And the first weekend of the year, we're going to kick things off by having some very special guests join us that day. I'm going to be having a, a conversation, an interview with uh, Brian Welch and his daughter, uh, Jenea. And I don't know if any of you like, know who this is, but Brian's probably the most known for his uh, role in the band Corn. All right, big fans. All right, I, see, I can tell. Uh, uh, and even if you don't know who Corn is or you know, are a fan, uh, you are going to love uh, Brian and Jenea, and uh, they're good friends of ours. And they're going to talk about their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, the mistakes that they've made along the way, the things that God's been teaching them. And I don't care who you are, you're going to be encouraged by our conversation, challenged, convicted. You'll probably laugh because they're really funny. And uh, can I just say this, that if you're looking for a good reason to invite somebody who's stayed away from church for a long time, or maybe they've politely turned you down every time you invite them, and you know who they are, uh, invite them to come first Sunday of 2020. It's going to be a great conversation with them. And then uh, finally, before we get rolling, I uh, just want to announce uh, we have launch dates and locations for campus number five and six. All right. Anybody excited about that? Man, I am. I'm excited about it. And uh, mark it on your calendar. Uh, Sunday, January the 19th, we are launching our Midtown Campus at the uh, Glendale Seventh-day Adventist Church in Broad Ripple. This will be our first portable location to begin services there. We've actually got some real exciting developments kind of behind the scenes for this campus that we'll announce at the grand opening. So you're going to want to stay tuned in for that. And then the very next month uh, on uh, January or uh, February the uh, 23rd, we're launching our Northeast Campus uh, at the Fall Creek Intermediate School in Fishers. And uh, we're just really excited about what all God's going to do in and through these campuses. And... Uh, we have more people signed up for the launch teams of these two campuses than any other campus launch in our history. And if you, it's still not too late. If you'd like to be a part of this campus, if you live in either one of those areas, uh, December the 15th, you can have, uh, go to the launch team gathering, get all the information at tpcc.org backslash launch team. We would love to see you there. Well, I, I don't know how you're feeling right now. I, I'm kind of getting this sense uh, so far today that everybody's sort of like in that pre-Christmas slumber. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, but uh, I don't know if you're the kind of person that, like, when it comes to Christmas, like, you just can't get enough of it. Like, how many of you, you're like that kind of a person? You're like, I just can't get enough of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, the rest of you, all right, you're the, you've been in the category, can't wait till it's over. You know, it's just like, hey, it's nice while it lasts, but, you know, January 1st, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief, and we're all, I think, kind of feeling a little bit of that, like, stress and pressure, because regardless of which camp you fit in, regardless of how you navigate Christmas, whether it's the can't get enough or can't wait till it's over, we all know that the next couple of weeks is going to be filled 
potentially with some stress and some added weight. And here's the thing about Christmas. Christmas just really kind of magnifies kind of the season of life you're already in. So if things are kind of going really good, then Christmas sort of magnifies that. If things are challenging, Christmas has a tendency to magnify that. Here's the one thing I know, regardless of how you would describe yourself, is that when it comes to Christmas, there is no such thing as the perfect Christmas. Ryan did a really great job last week as we kicked off this series called The Way Back of just reminding us that even the first Christmas 2,000 years ago, like it was far from perfect. And we've sort of done our best to sort of clean it up and make it look real picturesque uh, in, the, in the form of the nativity. In fact, I brought a picture of the nativity scene that's inside our front door at our house. Like if you come over to our house and as soon as you would walk in, this is what you would see in the hallway. And I don't want you to get me wrong, like I, I love everything about this. My wife pulls it out out of storage every year and she sets it up and, and I love it, but that ain't real. And it's like she kind of gets tired of me reminding her of that. Like I walk by and I'm just like, that is, that's not how it went down. And she's like, would you stop being a pastor? Would you stop being a theologian, right? Just enjoy the nativity. And, uh, but you look at it and it's wonderful. But come on, man, Mary and Joseph, they just look so calm. Like this is the way they wanted to start their family in a barn. And the barn animals look so well behaved and there is no manure and it just looks so picturesque. You know, you get the angels up here and the star. And, and I don't want to take anything away from the nativity, but Mary and Joseph were human beings. And you know that there would have been some stress and some strain and some anxiety. And always around this time of the year, especially when I'm beginning to feel the weight of Christmas falling on my shoulders, as, as I begin to think a little bit about what it would have been like to, to have been Mary, like, what would that have felt like? And you know that Mary, growing up as a little girl in Nazareth, like she would have been very familiar with the prophecies of the, of the coming Messiah. There's over 300 of them over hundreds of years. And you know that Mary would have sat through Sunday school lessons and sermons and lessons about the Messiah. And there's no way, though, in a million years that she ever would have dreamed that she would have played any role in it, let alone give birth to that Messiah. Let alone be the one to feed the Messiah and teach him how to walk and wipe his nose and change his diaper. Like there's no way she would have ever thought that she would have been that involved in it. And the details of the Christmas story at times, I think the challenge for many of us is, even if you don't know the Bible super well, is that we have heard the details of the nativity so many times that around this time of the year, it has a tendency to become sort of like white noise. And it's like, it's like, you know, the real meaning of Christmas. It's kind of in the background, but it doesn't necessarily stir our hearts, maybe like what it once did. But if you were just to kind of give you the details of the Christmas story without any background that you knew what it was, or you never heard it before, it, it would seem incredibly unusual. In fact, if I were to come to you and say, hey, you got to check out this new TV show on Netflix or Apple TV Plus. It's amazing. And you're like... Well, tell me about it. And I'm like, well, without spoiling it, it's, it's all about this unmarried teenage girl who gets pregnant. And then her fiance is thinking about bailing on her because clearly she's lying to him. And neither of them have very much money. They're just living in poverty. And there's this evil dictator played by Kevin Spacey who he like, can't you just see him playing that? And he, and he, he puts out an order to kill all the baby boys in the land. And while on an unexpected road trip, her water breaks. There is no hotel reservation. So she gives birth in a barn. You would be like, yeah, stick with reruns of The Office, all right? I, 
I, I'm already stressed out enough this Christmas season. Like, that's the last thing I need. And I think to, to us, we, we look at the Christmas story and we sort of depersonalize it. And we sort of think like that they had it all together. And yet, Mary would have felt this incredible pressure. Not just to give birth to the Messiah, but to actually foster the kind of home life in which Jesus the Messiah would grow up as a well-balanced, emotional, emotionally healthy individual so that he could become the hope of the world. Don't mess this up, Mary. Just kind of curious, how many parents in the room? Just an honest moment of vulnerability. How many parents right now just feel like you're messing your kids up, all right? And if your kids are here, like, you can be honest, right? They already know, okay? It's... And there's so many times as a dad when I'm just like, man, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to say it that way. I could have handled that situation way better. I, I could have given them that thing. What if I would have gotten them that thing? Then would that have given them this opportunity? Or maybe the other way. I've given them way too many things. And at times we can feel like we're sort of messing up our kids because we're human beings. Man, forget saving for college. Let me just save for your therapy, all right? You're just <laughs> going to need that. And... Uh, can you imagine the added pressure that it would have been for Mary to raise the hope of the world? It had to have been difficult. Listen as Luke describes that first Christmas when Mary finds out the role that she's going to play in it. It starts out this way. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin. So first peculiar detail named Mary. She was engaged, second peculiar detail, to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, I always love this, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. If you go to the next slide. Confused and disturbed. I bet she was. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. To which, here's what I thought as I was studying this this last week. I was like, well, what does it look like to not have favor with God? If this is what having favor with God gets you. Apparently, I'm the only one. All right, so, so you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now here, I want you to check this out. This is Mary's response, which just makes her human. She says this. She asks the questions. These five words that I want to hone in on in our time together today. She says, but how can this happen? That is an incredibly great question. And there's a, I think like a like a biological aspect to this, clearly, because she says, I'm a virgin. She's meaning, I don't understand here because I've not been with Joseph. But there's also an emotional aspect to that question. Can you hear it? It's a sense of like, it, there's a, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And then there's a, but how can this happen? It's the emotional side of the question. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody here today that can relate to that question. Any of you here in a season of life in which those five words could describe what you're going through. And you would be like, how can this happen? I, I thought that our marriage was in a good place. thought it was in a better place. Not perfect. But thought we were doing okay. Like we did the marriage counseling. We've started date nights. We were communicating better. So how can this happen? 
And I thought things were going really well at work. Like I got the promotion, I closed the deal, I was getting my feet underneath me. So how can this happen? And I, I was feeling good physically. Like I was eating right, I was getting enough sleep, I was exercising. But then the doctor called and as you hang up, you're like, how can this happen? And I thought that she was my friend. I thought that he was the one. How can this happen? I, I thought that I had a handle on that addiction or that anger issue. How can this happen? And I think as a result of that question, many of us, especially this time of, of the year, we can feel a bit overwhelmed. We can feel stressed out. We can feel anxious. And what I want you to be reminded of or maybe to hear for the very first time is that the power of the Christmas story is not just found in what happened. And what I mean by that is what happened is that God became a human being and he came to live among us and to pay the price for our sins. That's what happened. The power, though, is found in how it happened. And that's why Luke goes to the great links that he goes to give us the details around this unusual first Christmas and it is unusual. I mean, listen to it for the first time. You look at this, and, and here are a number of ways this could have gone down. Mary and Joseph, like for starters, could have already been married. And, you know, maybe they've got four or five years under their belt, and they maybe had one or two kids to show that they can actually, you know, do the parenting thing. And Joseph just got a promotion at work, and they just moved into the middle-class suburban neighborhood, and they've got two low-mileage camels in the garage, and things are going good. You know, they, they, they're on their feet. Jesus got access to all the best schools. Like, he could have come that way. And if I was God, that's how I would have done it because I would want the Messiah to have all of the best opportunities so that, you know, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's got to be the hope of the world, so let's give him the advantage. And he didn't do that. And all the details in the nativity just seem, like, unusual. You're left scratching your head going, why would God do it that way? How many of you have ever heard of the phrase, jump the shark? Any of you? It actually, so three. So it actually <laughs> comes out of a television show uh, called Happy Days that was popular several decades ago. Any of you heard of Happy Days? Oh, more of you. All right, there we go. The main character of Happy Days was this guy named the Fonz, and he was supposed to be like this like really cool guy. And there was like, he wore a leather jacket and said, hey, all the time. All right. So check it out later. And uh, um, th there was this time in the, in the running of Happy Days where ratings were going down. And so the writers and the producers, in order to boost ratings, they created uh, an episode in which the plot line was the Fonz uh, was like water skiing. Here's like an image of it. And so he's out on the lake uh, in a leather jacket and apparently boxers. All right. And so uh, and there's this scene. <laughs> this is so stupid. This is like, welcome to Christmas at Trader's Point. All right. So... Uh, there's this scene where the Fonz jumps a shark on water skis. And it was so stupid that the phrase gets born right then and there, that when something gets so ridiculous that you're grasping for things, it's called jump, don't jump the shark. And I don't know about you, man. I, I read the details of Luke in the, in, the, in the very first Christmas and a virgin and she's unmarried and there's... There's no room in the inn, so let's give birth in a barn. And Jesus' crib is a feeding trough. And there comes a certain point where you're like, are you jumping the shark right now? Like these details just seem to be over the top. Why? And I think here's the very clear answer why. If the nativity would have been perfect, then you and I wouldn't have been able to relate to it because you and I aren't perfect. 
And there's something about, there's something about what God did 2,000 years ago. It's not just in the what happened, it's the how it happened, and I don't want you to miss it. God is simply saying, you, see, you think your life's out of control? You think right now you're, you're facing an incredible amount of stress and pressure and anxiety and worry, and he says, I'm right there with you. See, here's what this sort of teaches us about the very first Christmas is that the message of God's grace, which in other words, the gospel message is not what we would call transactional. See, the transactional understanding of God's grace and love to you would be stated this way. And maybe this is how some of you grew up. Sin separated us from God. So God sent Jesus to tell us how to get back. And for many of you, maybe that's how you understood all of this. There's a word for that. It's called religion. And religion says, well, this is how you get back. Here's what you believe. Here's what you do. Here's the morals you have. Now listen, I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't matter how many things you believe. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. All that stuff, you're never going to get back on your own. And it became legalistic. See, here's what happens whenever it turns into this sort of transactional equation is that other big people become the judge and jury of your beliefs, morals, and behavior. And it just totally turns you off. You, you totally miss the gospel message, which honestly is what many of you rejected. You rejected God for all the wrong reasons. He didn't come in a transactional way. He came in, here's the beauty of Christmas, in an incarnational way. And incarnational has this subtle difference that makes all, it's a world of difference. It's simply this. Jesus stepped into our humanity to become our way back to God. And for those of you that didn't clap, you're going, what does that mean? It means simply this. Oftentimes, I think that we think, well, if you would just get all of your beliefs in order, then come to Jesus and he'll receive you. If you would just get all of your questions answered, then come to Jesus and he'll receive you. If you just get your act together and stop sinning and be holy and then be worthy to come to Jesus, then he'll help you. And, and, and what God is offering is he says, no, 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 no. The only thing that you really need to believe is that Jesus is God's son. You hit your wagon to Jesus. You can, you, in fact, you're going to continue to have questions. You're going to continue to have struggles. You're going to continue to deal with sin. And as you begin to walk with Jesus, it's a progression. He begins to slowly change you from the inside out. But you try to reverse that, it just turns into to legalism that pushes you further and further away from God. The Christmas story says that God became a human being. He stepped into our humanity to become our way back, to become our way back from fear and to become our way back from this word, this thing, this issue that has become so huge in our world today, anxiety. And there would have been, have been plenty of it in the first Christmas story. Do you know that um, anxiety is the number one health issue for women today? It's number two for men, get this, right behind uh, drugs and alcohol, which I think actually men deal with anxiety just as much as women, but we use drugs and alcohol to cope with it. Did you know that over 40 million of us deal with the kind of anxiety that is disruptive to our relationships, work, and personal peace? What I mean by that is that uh, all of us deal with anxiety in different levels, but over 40 million of us are dealing with it in, in a way that's disruptive to our lives. 
Over $48 billion are spent treating anxiety-related symptoms. Over 70% of teens say that anxiety is the number one issue that they face in the world today. But yet this touches every age and every demographic, as many of you know. Do you know that um, when uh, the nations are surveyed, uh, do you know which nation comes back year over year as struggling with anxiety more than any other nation in the world? Do you know? It's Switzerland. No, it's not Switzerland. It's, <laughs> it's us. Uh, that probably didn't come as too much of a surprise to you. In fact, it, even more so, do you know that uh, when people from developing nations who maybe grew up with less material possessions... When they move to the United States and get an increase in material possessions, their anxiety usually increases with it. And so we're, we're, we're anxious about all kinds of things. We're anxious that we won't have enough, that we won't be enough. We're anxious about our health. We're anxious about politics. We're anxious about other things that we can't control. So, so what is it exactly? Like what is anxiety? How would we sort of understand or define it? And how is it different from fear? Because they're actually very similar. They overlap. Well, here's what fear is. Fear actually sees a threat in, in life and, and reacts to it. And that's actually a good thing. Fear is actually a gift. Like I, I want my kids to have a healthy amount of fear in their life. So that way they don't burn their hand on the stove or walk out in front of traffic or do something foolish. Uh, so fear is a good thing, but anxiety is, is similar but very, very different. Anxiety would be that it, it oftentimes imagines a threat and then gets stuck. It's often been described as a tidal wave of what ifs. And so it's like, well, what if this happens? And what if I lose my job? And what if they walk out? And what if I get sick? And it's sort of like, have you ever put your uh, car in neutral and then just sat there and just revved the engine? And the engine was not designed to do that. After a while, it's going to overheat and it's going to break down. And neither is your mind. And that's what anxiety is. It's sort of like a revving of your mind and your thoughts and your emotions and your spirit. And it's, there's, there's no release in it. And it eventually just leads to this place of potential breakdown. Now, this doesn't explain every cause of anxiety, but I do want to point out three potential triggers of anxiety in our lives, especially around this time of the year. I think the first one is just simply this. One trigger is that we feel more alone than, than ever before. You go back to Luke chapter 1 when Mary gets this initial information and you would have known, Mary would have felt so alone in the world. Like as soon as they would have said, Mary, this is what's going to happen. Immediately, you know her thought would have been, um, everyone's, nobody's going to believe me. Joseph's not going to believe me. My mom and dad aren't going to believe me. My, this community isn't going to believe me. And she would have felt all alone in the world. And multiple studies show that we've become more individualistic and more isolated than ever before. Now, the irony of that is that we are more connected uh, than any other era in human history via technology. So because of technology, we can see what other people are doing and where they are going and who they are doing it with, like, all the time. It's like an instant connectivity that the side effects of that instant connectivity is that it's causing us to feel a bit isolated and alone. And I think here's why. We're not necessarily interacting, we're watching. And when you're watching something, it just makes you feel like you're all alone. And we've sort of replaced real relationships with virtual ones 
And technology has replaced many of our friendships. I think another potential trigger for anxiety is we feel more insignificant than ever. And I think Mary, whenever she would have been given this assignment, she would have thought this. I don't know that I can do it. And who am I to be the mother of the Messiah? And she would have felt incredibly small. And I think many of us, we wonder the same thing. Have any of you ever had this thought before? I know I've wrestled with this. You look around at what other people are doing, mostly through social media, and you see their highlight reel, you see their uh, edited images of themselves, and you ever, have you ever thought to yourself, man, how did they accomplish that at that age? How did they get enough money to travel there? Like, isn't this like their third vacation in two months? And you start to like compare, and have you ever had this thought? Seems like everybody else's life is advancing, and I feel stuck. I actually feel like I'm in, going in reverse. I think another trigger to the anxiety that we're feeling is that we feel more insecure than ever before. And you know that Mary would have felt that as well, especially when she and Joseph are on their way to Bethlehem to register for the census. They're out in the open knowing the decree that Herod had given to kill all the baby boys and she is pregnant with a baby boy. And that feeling whenever the innkeeper would have said, hey, we don't, we don't have any vacancies, how, how how vulnerable she would have felt in that moment. And I think that many of us feel that way. It's like an ongoing sense of vulnerability. Here's the irony. Statistically speaking, uh, the world has never been safer than it is right now. I know it doesn't feel that way, but when you begin to look at some of the statistics, it actually shows, did you know that uh, 50 years ago, the life expectancy of the average adult was 70. Today it's 83. In the last 25 years, death by cancer has dropped by 27%. Still a big issue, but the percentage has dropped significantly in the last quarter century. Extreme global poverty is down 65% in the last 20 years. Kidnappings are actually down. Uh, Terrorist attacks are actually more down, especially from the 1970s. Violent crimes are down by 20%. And so it doesn't feel that way, though, does it? And I think part of the reason is because the speed at which we are processing negative information outpaces our ability to process it in a healthy way. So some of you can remember this. Like I, 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 was a, I grew up in the 1980s and there was, like, was no internet. There was no 24-hour, seven days a week news channel. It was glorious. It was amazing. And the reason and, and, and uh, the way in which you got news was either you read it in a newspaper or you caught maybe the half-hour news block on TV, but there was no, like, recording, you know, there was no DVR. So if you missed it, you missed it. Once again, glorious. It was incredible. But now, all you get, I mean, it's constantly, it's popping up notifications on our phone. Every time we turn on the TV, it's just a constant stream, and we're not able to fully process it. So these three things right here, isolation, insecurity, and insignificance, it's sort of like the trifecta of anxiety in our lives. So let me say a couple of things here. First of all, if you are feeling anxious in any way, it's normal. And I don't know that we hear that enough. Many of you, maybe you, you, you have like these everyday feelings of, you know, you're just sort of anxious about something little and it goes away, all the way to a, a, a disruptive sort of debilitating anxiety and everywhere in between. That, that's just normal. That's what it means to be human. 
and maybe somewhere along the line, you were told or led to believe that because of your anxiety, there was something wrong with you. And maybe even in a church somewhere, somebody said, if you would just have more faith, the anxiety would go away. Or you were told, you know what, if you would just pray more or pray better prayers, then you wouldn't be so anxious. Or worse yet, well, clearly you've got some sort of unconfessed sin going on in your life and you need to come clean. And when you come clean from that unconfessed sin, then God will release you from your anxiety. And can I just tell you that that's a bunch of garbage? Can I just tell you that there isn't anything in that that is true? Now, don't misunderstand me. Like, do we need to work on our faith? Do we need to pray? Do we need to, uh, you know, confess sin? Absolutely. But in no way does God go, man, you don't have a good enough faith, so here's anxiety. <laughs> like, in no way does God like, oh, man, those prayers, C minus, boom, anxiety. All right? It's like, like he doesn't worry. He's like, oh, you're hiding that sin? Well, I'm just going to put a hefty dose of anxiety on you until you come clean. Like, God doesn't operate that way. So to feel anxious is human. And it's like, if I were to ask you, like, what's the more real you? The physical you, like the physical me right now standing in front of you, like what you're looking at. The emotional me, the things you can't see, but the things that I'm feeling. Or the spiritual me. And you would be like, like, what's the more real me? And you would go, well, you know, it's, it's, it's all three. Like we are emotional, spiritual, and physical beings. And so if I were to have walked out onto this stage today with a limp, you wouldn't have gone, well, Aaron, you need to have better faith. And if you had had better faith, you wouldn't be limping right now. Or if I were to walk out here with my arm in a sling, you wouldn't say, Aaron, you need to pray better prayers. Or if I were to walk out here with a nasty cough, you, you would be like, well, first of all, stay away from me. But then you would be like, you know, Aaron, clearly you've got some unconfessed sin in your life. You, you wouldn't say any of that. And there's no significant difference between a physical injury or ailment of some kind and an emotional or mental one. It's not a sin to be sick. And even if you've been maybe diagnosed with some sort of mental disorder or challenge or you need some sort of medication or some sort of therapy, there's no shame in that. Just like maybe you'd be diagnosed with, with asthma or diagnosed as a diabetic or maybe you've twisted an ankle and you need some sort of medical attention. Listen, some of the greatest leaders in history were men and women who wrestled with anxiety and depression. So there was a season in my life, I've actually been very open about it. I've shared this with our church before where... Um, I really uh, wrestled with anxiety and even depression for the better part of a year, if not more than a year. And here's how it manifests itself for me. Um, every morning at 4 a.m., my eyes would pop wide open. And as soon as I would wake up and realize that I was awake, it was as if this impending sense of doom just poured into the room. And I was under a lot of pressure at work and I was trying to keep things together. I was a young dad and and trying to figure out my way, and I was just under a ton of pressure. I didn't know how to deal with it. And it was as if like this dark cloud just would hover over me at 4 a.m., and then it would stay there all day long. And I would just feel this sense of impending doom, like zero motivation, not sure how I'm going to navigate my way out of this. And here's how that anxiety felt, is that the anxiety felt a lot like I was stuck in a pit, 
with no way out. And maybe some of you feel that way. And what I want you to know that in reality, anxiety is more like a tunnel in which there is a way out. And there are some similarities between a tunnel and a pit, but there are some massive differences. And in a tunnel, there's a way out. There's a way to navigate your way through it. And what I want to encourage you with today, it may not happen overnight. For me, it didn't happen overnight. It was a gradual process. But the Christmas story is God subtly saying to you and me, there's a way out. The, the word for this season is Advent. Maybe you, some of you know the meaning of this. Is that Advent is the arrival of an important person and event. But here's where uh, there's immediate practical application for you and me. Is that Advent is also the invitation to find your way back from feelings of anxiety through that important person and event. And Mary appears to have done this. This is not like, I'm not just like, like, this is not a hypothetical. Like we see it in the text. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, we left Mary in her anxiety in verse 34. Poor, poor girl. And we need to go back. And I want to show you verse 38. It says this, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything, that, that jumps out at me. May everything you have said about me come true. And as I was reading this this last week, I was like, really, everything? Like if I was Mary, I think I would have tried to negotiate. I think I would have said, may most of what you have said come true. Like, can we like, you know, not do this part over here because that just seems too painful. But Mary said, may everything you say about me come true. Now here's the question that I have for you to think about today is what happened? What happened between verse 34 and verse 38 that caused her to, to come to that conclusion? And maybe the simplistic answer would be, well, clearly between verse 34 and verse 38, Mary, she worked on her faith. Or Mary prayed better prayers. You know, she went into her prayer closet and she came out like, you know, like the superhero of faith. Or, or clearly Mary confessed some sin between those four verses and she was able to say this. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Mary did have a good faith and she prayed and she confessed some sin. Maybe. I, I don't know. But I think it maybe even gets a little bit more practical than that. I think Mary did something between those four verses. The Holy Spirit did something within her that I think you and I can do as well. And it's actually more practical than what you think. And it's not just wishing that anxiety would go away. It's more substantial than that. So um, when I was a young man, there was a uh, professor uh, that it sort of, he was an author, preacher, professor that sort of mentored me at a distance. And his name was Nofel Staten. And Nofel, when he was a younger man, before he... Uh, became a, a professor, he worked at one of the busiest airports in the nation as an air traffic controller. This was decades ago. Uh, he worked at Chicago O'Hare Airport as a traffic controller. And uh, this was before the days of all the technology that we have today. And he actually would describe what it was like. And he said that uh, it was a high-pressure job because hundreds and hundreds of planes are on approach in the airport. And as the air traffic controller, he had to make these split-second decisions about which plane could land where and do it in such a way that he wouldn't cross paths with planes or they wouldn't run into each other. And he said it was super high-pressure. And he said, I had to make a call. As all these planes were coming in, I had to control which planes could land. And I think that's the, that's the key. See, when it comes to feelings of anxiety, if we could go to the next slide, you can't control every thought that flies into your mind. But you do have a say as to which ones you allow to land. And I think... 
And I think that's what Mary did. I think that the feelings of confusion and stress and anxiety, they were there. But she, between those four verses, she had a say as to which ones she was going to allow land. I think Mary was employing the wisdom of Philippians 4 verse 8, even though for her it hadn't even been written yet. But to us it has been. It says this, fix your, what? Thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And this is not like, you know, uh, the power of positive thinking. This isn't just, you know, faking it till you make it. This isn't over-spiritualizing things. This actually is a very practical verse. You want to know what it's essentially saying? You need to think about what you think about. And don't just, just because a thought flies into your mind doesn't mean that you give it permission to land. Now, feelings are true, all right? Now, don't, tell, don't hear me say that you should deny your feelings. That's not what I'm saying. Feelings are very, very true, but they often do not tell us the truth. And so you can be feeling something and those feelings need to be heard. Those feelings need to be acknowledged. Those feelings need to be empathized with. And then in a spirit of wisdom, you need to ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you know which feelings you need to redirect. And to say, you know what, that's a very valid thought, that's a very valid fear, that's anxiety that I'm feeling. But you know what, I'm not going to allow that to land. The Greek word in the New Testament for anxiety, you know the Bible talks a ton about anxiety. The Greek word for it is merimnao. And it's this idea that our thoughts are divided. They are going in a thousand different directions and we can't process, and we can't focus. And one of the most powerful weapons, as it turns out, that you can use to combat debilitating anxiety, as it turns out, weighs less than three pounds and sits between your ears. Do you know that there's a section of your brain that deals uh, with um, emotion, and then there's a section of your brain that deals with with logic, and the two need to be working in concert with each other. One doesn't overpower the other. One isn't any better than the other, but the two actually work in partnership to give you a healthier you. And many of you already know the, the science behind this, and I'm not going to fully explain it in super detail. I just want to give you the gist of the picture, is that that part of your brain that deals with emotion is called the amygdala. And the amygdala uh, experiences maybe fear, anxiety, and worry, whatever. And then what it does is it sends signals to another part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is, deals with logic. And it basically discerns, is this a legitimate fear, worry, concern, or anxiety or not? In other words, the prefrontal cortex determines if this is going to land or not. And the, the, the neurological pathway between the two needs to be really healthy and needs to be clear. And so what we end up needing to do is, is we need to begin to, this is what Philippians 4.8 is talking about, fix your thoughts. That's exactly what it's talking about because the amygdala is not objective. The amygdala has one job and one job only, to keep you safe. But that's why you need the prefrontal cortex to help you determine and figure it out. And if those neurological pathways get get blocked or get, get redirected. Maybe medication is needed. Maybe some sort of counseling or therapy is needed. But then also Philippians 4 verse 8, the wisdom of it says, fix your thoughts on. You know what it's talking about? It's saying that your mind is pliable. Your mind is like a muscle. It can be changed. It's, there's a technical term for it. It's called neuroplasticity. 
And it's this idea that you can actually rewire the way in which you think. And I think that that's what Mary did between verses 34 and 38. I don't think she just closed her eyes and had wishful thinking. I don't think that she was naive. I think that she landed back on the trust and the promises of God. So let me give you two extremely practical things you can take with you to help uh, work on how you think about what you think about. And it's just simply this. Replace your Bible reading with Bible engagement. Here's what I mean. These are very similar, but they're totally different. Here's what I found in all the years of pastoring that I've kind of been around here. New Year's is coming. New Year's resolutions are coming. Many of you are going to be tempted to like maybe say, this is the year. I'm going to jump in and read the Bible all the way through. And you're going to read through Genesis. You're going to be so excited. And then you're going to get to Leviticus. And you're out, right? You're like, I don't understand this. This is hard. This is weird. I don't see how this applies to my life. And then like you, you, your Bible reading, be honest, has been filled with fits of stops and starts. And can I just say that all the Bible is equally inspired. Not all the Bible is equally applicable. And so I actually want to give you a tool that you might check out. I'm actually going to start reading this January 1. And if you want to join me, I'd love for you to join me. It's a book called Core 52. It's written by a friend of mine. He's actually a Bible college professor of mine. And he, and he felt this same conviction. And he said, you know, we want to strengthen, you know, you, if you go and exercise, you need to strengthen your core. He's like, we need to strengthen our core. What is the core of the Bible? And he boiled it down. And he said it was really hard to do. But he boiled it down to 52 essential passages that you need to apply to your life. What's the core of what the Bible is saying? And he just takes a, a passage every week and then he drives it down to application so you can take it, understand it, and apply it. So I'm telling you, it's not just the Bible reading. It's the Bible engagement, meaning am I going to apply this? When am I going to apply it? How am I going to apply it? How am I going to talk about it? That's what's transformational and it'll, it'll, it'll help you think about what you think about. Here's the second thing. Surround yourself or invest yourself into life-giving relationships. You ever heard people say, like, you are, you know, who you spend time around? You want to know the kind of person you're becoming? Look at your friends. Same thing is true, man. This is why, this is the backbone of our group's ministry. Is that we, want to, we want you to gather in the room that you're in right now uh, with a large group of people so that we can stir one another up. So that we can give each other hope and encouragement. But we also don't want you just to slip in and slip out and just watch or observe a service. Now, if you're just checking things out, if you're new to faith, if you're recovering from a bad church experience, you're welcome to take all the time you need to do that. But at some point, I want you to get a jersey and get in the game. I want you to be known. I want you to find yourself in life-giving relationships. Here's what I mean by that. People who will encourage you to look more like Jesus. People that will give you godly advice and counsel. And I don't know how many times I've found myself in a slump, emotionally speaking, and I pick up the phone and I call two or three men that I know will love me enough to tell me the truth. And it begins to help me think about what I think about. Man, we go back to the very first Christmas. It was far from perfect. My, my prediction is this Christmas won't be perfect either. But actually, I think it's a good thing because I think it's an opportunity for us to invite the power of God into our less than perfect lives and ask him to do what only he can. Father, we come to you right now and I just pray that your spirit would be present in each one of our rooms right now across all of our campuses. 
and that you would begin to work on the hearts and the minds of, of everyone here today. And I pray that this message landed in some way in someone's life, that this would have been maybe something that they needed to hear, maybe something they didn't want to hear, but something they need to hear, and that they would feel encouraged to know that there is a way out, there is a way back from feelings of debilitating anxiety. And so, God, we just want to pause and take a few moments to put our trust in you and to ask you to do, to invite you to do what only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.